You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's topic on editing, my favorite assistant editor and current number one fan of the podcast so far asked me to do an update about what's going on with MGM. Also, if I don't do a great job in his opinion of describing his line of work, maybe I'll get a pass for granting him this information. So, MGM. Back in December, it was announced that MGM was up for sale once more with an asking price of $5 billion. Now, if you remember the MGM episode from all the way back in September, you might remember that MGM has been sold and passed through several hands over its nearly 100-year history. Currently, the studio operates as a co-production company more than the studio it used to be. This might have you thinking, wow, $5 billion seems a little expensive for a production company, and you generally be correct. Also, a lot of this asking price has a lot to do with the debt they're currently in. However, few studios or production companies have the history and therefore the film catalog that MGM has. As the streaming wars rage on, R.I.P. Quibi, the acquisition of content has been a colossal undertaking for all of these different platforms. Many smaller production companies have struck up deals with these bigger studios and streaming platforms to have their catalogs streamed on these sites. Right now, it's very much a quantity versus quality situation, except for Disney Plus because nostalgia and The Mandalorian. MGM, just on its own, owns 4,000 films and 17,000 hours of television. Of all the things they own, though, the James Bond franchise is easily their most lucrative. The fact that the most recent James Bond film was pushed an entire year certainly did MGM no favors financially either, as it denied them what would have been likely a very nice payday for them. So, factoring all of these things in, it's not a surprise that MGM, once again, is trying to sell itself to a bigger studio. As of now, MGM has declined to discuss the reasons for them taking the studio back to market, and for now, there are no publicly known prospective buyers. It was reported earlier in the year that they had tried to get James Bond on one of the streaming platforms, like I believe Apple TV was the one that they were the closest with, but no studio was willing to take the reported $300, $350 million asking price MGM tried to get. So, now on to this week's topic. This week, we're covering the individual or individuals who take all of the pieces we've discussed in previous weeks and compiles them all together in the hopes of creating a motion picture, the editor. Like previous weeks, we're going to go over the history of the position, education, career pathways, and more. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
In the early days of cinema, there was no need for an editor. Early films were shot as if they were plays. Action occurred within one locked down shot and the movies lasted as long as the film that the camera could hold. These early films often showed mundane everyday things by modern standards, like a train entering a station or people walking down the street or leaving a factory. Seeing the illusion of motion on the screen was enough to delight early audiences. As we've discussed in other episodes, the art form of film would soon develop beyond the exhibition of actualities in Nickelodeons to the screening of narrative short films in theaters. It was nearly a decade after the invention of movie cameras that we started seeing editing as a tool, and later an art form. Editing styles in the early days included something called the tableau vivant, aka the living picture, which is editing simply by turning the camera on and off to create your edits. The film is later pieced together if necessary by cutting where one scene ends and attached it to where the next begins. Technically editing, but far from the art form as we view it today. Some of the earliest pioneers of film editing includes British filmmaker Robert W. Paul, whom in 1898 made a short called Come Along, Do. The film was about a minute in length and consisted of two separate shots, basically the bare minimum of editing as a technical skill. What often doesn't enter into the conversation, even today, is that editing is not only a technical skill, but a creative one as well. This was how the creative side began to develop. The Brighton School in England hasn't come up in this podcast as of yet, as it's a little bit of a niche section of film history, but a very important one. This is where some early forms of editing widely developed. Despite its name, Brighton School was not a school, rather a group of four early British filmmakers. The Brighton School filmmakers started similarly to their counterparts in France and the U.S., beginning their careers by using their friends and loved ones as their performers before expanding into their own studio and hiring professional actors. Their short films, no longer than a minute long in the early years and eventually peaking at five minutes, despite their short length, were actually quite impressive for the era. They featured the aforementioned editing, as well as tinting film stock and implementing trick photography a la George Millier. Member James Williams's film Attack on a China Mission Station in 1900 would be the first film to use what's called a reverse cut, which is now known as the 180-degree rule, a crucial tool not only in editing, but in cinematography as well, as they sort of run hand in hand. You've seen this in a film a million times, and if it's done well, you shouldn't even be aware of it. It's essentially a guideline about how a character is shot in a scene that gives the audience a sense of spatial awareness between the subjects and the action of a scene. The easy way to explain it is that if you imagine a scene with two people and the camera cuts back and forth between the two, the actor on the left side of the establishing shot, which is the shot that shows you the entire space, should always appear on the left side of the screen. The actor on the right side of that establishing shot, always on the right. Breaking this rule is called jumping the line, as it will flip the image and is usually considered bad form in narrative editing, but jumping the line can be used to achieve certain effects in certain more surrealist pieces. In addition to this, the Brighton School would continue to experiment with various editing techniques and shot usage, including close-ups. Of course, the person who would take the methods of the Brighton School and turn it into something more familiar to a modern audience was Edwin S. Porter. His film, The Great Train Robbery, took everything the Brighton School had experimented with and blew it up. 
Train Robbery was 12 minutes long. It featured 20 shots and 10 separate locations. The film was the first prominent use of cross-cutting, which is the practice of cutting between the action in different locales. If you think back to last week when we talked about the man and woman in the airport to establish cuts and script action, that's essentially what cross-cutting is. When the editor gets that footage, they're the ones that have to make that tension happen with the coverage that was shot for those scenes. A good editor will make an audience feel Feel tension for the action unfolding before their eyes. While they may not have known it at the time, these early film editors were writing a language for generations of filmmakers to come. They learned that an entire actor's body didn't need to be seen in a shot in order to engage audience members, and that stringing two shots together, if done properly, could create a cohesive narrative that people could follow. This meant that films didn't have to be shot in one day or one week or even in one location. The world of filmmaking expanded from street corners and specialty studios to the entire world. If they could get a camera and shoot somewhere, they could make a film about it. The most famous study of audiences and the emotional power of editing we talked about briefly all the way back in episode three, an even briefer history of international film. The study was done by Russian director Lev Kuleshov, whom took a shot of a Russian actor with a neutral face and cut in clips of various different things. A bowl of soup, a woman asleep on a couch, a child with a toy bear, and played them for people. The shot of the actor was the exact same each time, though by cutting to the soup or the woman or the bear, the audience members claimed he looked differently and projected different emotions. For example, soup, hungry, sleeping woman, lust, child with bear, paternal. This experiment proved the power of what editing could do. It could literally manipulate people into feeling certain things. Considering all this, a great sin about the editing profession as a whole is that despite their clear importance to forming the final product, they are widely underglorified in the ways directors and even cinematographers are. Some of that may have to do with the fact that a casual theater goer only really notices editing if it's real bad. We can blame this lack of attention widely to the reason the modern director gets as much credit as they do with the final product of a film. Autourism. If you didn't listen to the director episode, this is basically the theory that the director is the author of the film and therefore the person deserving of the credit for the film being completed. Instead of trying to describe to you just how important editing can be for shaping a final film, as well as editing techniques, I've gone ahead and just placed some links in the show notes. It's way more vital to learn about these, seeing them visually, than hearing me struggling to describe them ad nauseum. I have been studying film since I was nine years old and and you would not believe how long it took me to coherently explain the 180 degree rule. So I'm going to do me and you guys a favor and just it's very, very interesting. It's very cool, but you're going to want to see it instead of hear it. So how does an editor edit? Well, these tools have changed quite dramatically over the past hundred years. The earliest example of an editing machine was the Moviola, which was invented by Ewan Surrier in 1924. The Moviola allowed editors the ability to view a film whilst editing. Editing at this time was very tactile and remained that way until digital editing became more popular. The Moviola allowed editors to view a film work print, a positive copy of the film negative. Editors would physically cut and, depending on the era, tape or glue two shots together. This was a very precise process, as any mistake made by the editor would require the production to reproduce another work print. This, of course, not 
not only ate up money, but time as well. The moviola, and later the flatbed editing machine, allowed editors to become more precise with their cuts. The pathway to the editing systems we have today for film came originally out of television. In the U.S., in the early days of television, if a live show aired at 9 p.m. on the East Coast and the network didn't want it to air on the West Coast until 9 p.m. there as well, something called a kinescope was used. This was literally a film camera pointed at a screen currently broadcasting the show. This would be done by West Coast networks who were receiving the East Coast feed. They would speed develop the film that came out of the camera before broadcasting them onto the West Coast feeds. If you've ever seen a pirated movie, which if you have, naughty naughty, you kind of have an idea of how this works. Because if you see how kind of shaky and sort of, you know, not cinematic quality a pirated film that was shot on someone's phone is, it was basically a professional version of that. This process at the time with the film and the fast processing was very, very far from perfect and ridiculously expensive. Desperate for a cheaper alternative led to the development of the videotape. Videotape recording was not achieved until about 1956, eight years after television came to be in the United States. The process was so popular that the company that invented the first machine, Ampex, had to take their orders for them on napkins after its unveiling. Within a couple of years, videotape was essentially the standard in television broadcast. Editing with videotape led to linear editing, which was a very rough, uncreative way to edit and didn't really further along editing as an art form. It was also highly restrictive, as the film or television show edited in this way would have to be done in order and any changes made to the edit meant that another print of the project would have to be completely redone. What started to emerge from this method, as well as the technological advances made at the time, was something now known as nonlinear editing. Nonlinear editing allows an editor to edit any part of the film without having to worry about what comes before or after whatever they're working on. This would require a computer with a ton of power and the ability to save and store that data. By 1971, this was possible with the CMX600, a $250,000 beast. After several similar attempts, including one by Lucasfilm cousin Droid Works to create the next great thing in editing, EMC2 was introduced, which stored the data on optical discs in around 1988. A year later, the Avid One was introduced. While only capable of cutting short programs and music videos, within five years the company had released a system capable of handling a feature film. Today, most films are edited via software like Avid, which is the go-to, by and large, for film, Final Cut, or Premiere Pro. We'll get into how nonlinear editing works, as well as the role of the editor in the modern production process later in the episode. I love movies, and every any movie that you love, chances are it was directed by a man, edited by a woman, which means a woman directed it. That's what that means. Literally, name a movie. I'm serious. Star Wars, Pulp Fiction, Jaws, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Lawrence of Arabia. Because that's how, look, those are the two. It's a dude with his camera dick just pointing it everywhere. Just, I'm um, just shooting fucking film. Oh my God, just 18 miles of it. Then the woman's got to show up. We all done, sweetie? Okay. Out you go. I got to make a story out of this mess. No, we're not gonna do, we're not gonna release an 18-hour movie, sweetie. No, no. 
Go have a sandwich. Thank you. I got to find the story here. In much of the early days of editing, basically until it developed into a storytelling tool, editing was not taken very seriously. The reels and negatives would generally be cut together by working class women. These silent era editors were widely ignored by the industry, often left out of the film credits altogether, making it quite difficult to trace their legacies. In the case of Italian editor Yolanda Bevenuti, whom edited nearly all of Roberto Rossellini's films, her name would be replaced by a man's on two of the director's most famous films, Rome Open City from 1945 and Paisan in 1946. Women were typically used for this kind of work because the job of cutting, as it was called back then, was likened to knitting and sewing. You know, lady work. It wasn't until director D.W. Griffith began major implementation of editing theories in his own works that the editor got any real respect. And then, of course, with anything, you guessed it, many of the women were pushed out of the profession by the heavily male-dominated business, though more women in editing managed to hold onto their positions than their female counterparts in other fields. Some of these early editors of the female persuasion did manage to sneak into the boys' club, including Viola Lawrence, who famously influenced Orson Welles' work on The Lady from Shanghai. Director Dorothy Arzner started as a cutter before managing to take the helm as a director for 17 films, 10 of which were edited by women, including Craig's Wife in 1936, which was cut by the aforementioned Viola Lawrence. In modern filmmaking, women have lost their dominance over the field, but have been able to create a mark on the industry at a prevalence widely unseen in other fields of entertainment. In fact, when the Editors Guild released their top 75 edited films in 2012, four of the top 10 were edited by women. By comparison, the Directors Guild released a directing list in 2016 with 80 of the best directed films. Want to guess how many women were on the entire list? I'll wait. Locked in a number? Well, if you guessed one, you are this week's big winner of Inequality Bingo. A lot of work has been done by female film scholars to restore the knowledge of whom these early pioneers of film editing were in order to understand their true impact on the history of the film industry. If you want to go into any of this further, I highly recommend you check out the website Edited By, which is a fantastic research for learning more about these, until recently, widely forgotten pioneers of cinema. So now that you have more history on film editing than most of you probably ever wanted, here's more or less what a modern editor does, simplified for the casual audience. Well, first things first, when editing a film, they've got to ingest all of the footage. Depending on the film, this might be done by an assistant editor instead of the editor. Assistant editors are responsible for labeling sequences, a series of scenes that form a distinct narrative unit, which is usually connected by either a location or time, reviewing the raw camera footage, setting up and naming files, adding metadata, a description of a media file, for example, the scene of the clip and the take it was on the day, Organizing those clips and figuring out codecs, which organizes data in the media file. 
Doing all of this before editing allows the editor an organized and efficient workspace for what comes next. This process is called offline editing, which is when an editor works with a lower res copy of the raw footage to assemble a film. The name comes from the days of editing using physical film stock. The reason you do offline editing with a lower resolution film is to allow the editor to work more efficiently. A big file would slow down their process significantly due to processing times. Oftentimes, when a film is in production, the film's editor is already cutting together some of the footage being shot on any particular day. This is usually assembled without any notes from the director, which means that certain takes, versions of the scene that were shot, the editor might use in a cut, may not be the ones the director necessarily wanted. After viewing the footage, the first thing an editor will assemble is called an assembly cut. This is a very rough cut of the film, which includes every scene that was shot for the film. Watching these are generally an excruciating process as the final story is far from polished. In a special effects heavy movie, this cut will be lacking all CGI and instead a placeholder card, similar to those used in silent films, will be added stating what needs to be shot or created in the future. When the director wraps production and enters the edit room is where the assembly cut becomes whittled down to what is known as a rough cut. This is the director and editor going in and making additional shot selections, basically what shot gets used where over another one and trimming them down for time. When you hear people complaining about the pacing of a film, this is when a good chunk of this will take time, is making sure the story is flowing this process can take anywhere from weeks to months, depending on the film. Sound is untouched at this point and will come in after a locked cut. More on sound next week. After this comes the fine cut, which is more refined. And in addition to the director's notes, likely includes input from the producers and on a studio film the executives, who will also have their own notes to what the final cut should look like. It's the responsibility of the editor to achieve a middle ground between all of them, whilst ensuring that the film still flows throughout. When a fine cut has been agreed upon by the editor, director, and producers, that is called a picture lock. Any changes to this are called conforms and are known for being incredibly expensive. When picture lock is achieved, the sound departments, special effects, and titles people will enter the project. All of these departments will work together, compiling everything together until a final product is achieved. The editor is usually not as directly involved in this process unless serving as a consultant to the director. After all of this, the film is brought online, aka linked to the original footage. This is the last step of the editing process and it is when color correction, effects, final titles, credits, and audio will be brought to the final film. This will be the version audiences see in the cinema. So now that I've super simplified the editing process, what is the education and career pathway? We'll get to that after a short break. Shock horror, if you've listened to any of the last three episodes, to be an editor, you need to be educated. This job more than the others due to the technical skills required in addition to the storytelling skills. Going to film school will allow you a plethora of time and experience with the software you will ultimately be using in your post-college career. 
As with the other careers we discussed this month, this will also expose you to other aspects of the filmmaking process. Knowing how these other departments function will give you a much more rounded out understanding of the process as a whole. Also, watch movies. Study how one scene is cut together differently from another. What's the difference between a cafe scene with two characters talking versus a car chase? In film school, one of my professors would have us tap out the shots in a scene so we could get a sense of pacing the editor created. I'm a very kinetic person, so this worked really well for me. After college, you're going to be working entry-level jobs as you build your resume. You'll likely be editing friends' projects on the weekends, but doing all of this will help you assemble a reel to present to prospective employers down the line. This will allow you to slowly, hopefully in a perfect world, move your way up through the ranks. And of course, networking don't hurt either. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, and if you have any questions, you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there for the time being, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. Thanks to Story Hobbit, whomever you are, for the nice review on iTunes this week. Also, in order to keep making this podcast, I've set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. Think of it as my virtual starving artist tip jar. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got some merch I'm hoping to expand on in the next month or so, which you can check out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're wrapping up the month with, in my opinion, the oft unappreciated and least understood department of filmmaking, the sound mixers and designers. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.